0: Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have adopted us uh, in and through your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Lord, as we continue our study of the ways in which Christians through the ages have gone wrong, Lord, lead us uh, down right straight paths that we might confess you truly, believe you more fully, and walk with you more faithfully. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, have any of you ever gone on one of these all-inclusive trips? I've always been kind of curious. A few of you have, like, where you go on the cruise and everything is inclusive. The question that we've got for us today is, is Jesus' lordship all-inclusive? Or are there some things that are left out? The nature of this heresy that we're going to talk about, adoptionism, puts this question to us. How far does his lordship go? What does it mean for him to be son of God? And as a result, how far does that reign uh, and rule extend? This is the question that's going to be raised today. But before we get into that, let's do our weekly quiz. Again, not shouting out your answers. Go ahead and circle in pen if you have it. I'm watching you guys. Very sneaky. No. Then we'll give the answers at the end. Number one, Jesus wasn't always Christ, but became so at his baptism. Number two, Jesus is Lord only of the sacred part of life. Number three, we are naturally children of God apart from grace. Number four, Jesus earned his status as the son of God through his works. And number five, through holy baptism, God adopts people into his family. All right. What is adoptionism? Here we go. Number one on your handout, adoptionism is the heresy that asserts Jesus became the Son of God. Became the Son of God. Now, before we go any further into it, that seems almost like a very innocuous kind of statement. Jesus became the Son of God. What's problematic, do you think, about that? Where Do you you sniff anything out already where you're like, oh, I can see why that might be tricky? Or is it... Not, not at all clear. Yeah, Esther. Okay, that because if Jesus was in existence at creation, mm-hmm. then to say that he became suggests that there's some kind of progress that we're not quite. Yeah, good. Other, other thoughts on that so far. I mean, this is kind of this is kind of the idea, and the problem is that wait a second. So isn't Jesus the Son of God from? the foundation of the world from the very beginning of creation, how is it that he becomes son of God? Well, we'll talk about what they're thinking here. So what was adoptionism? This emerged quite early in the church, in the second century, and then it kind of returned in a uh, morphing form around the eighth century. And one of the uh, books I was reading about adoptionism this week said, you know, this is a good example of how heresies keep coming back. And how the church has to stay vigilant because they might change the, the language, the characters might be altered a little bit, but it can show up again and again. At its most extreme forms, adoptionism denied the pre-existence of Christ. This is obviously a huge red flag, a huge problem. That was easier to uh, call out and to recognize. Later, more subtle versions didn't necessarily deny his preexistence, but they would be careful about what that actually meant. But at its fullest form of adoptionism denies jesus's pre-existence by pre-existence we mean like him being there john chapter one from in the beginning was the word this sort of thing okay number three this is a a key point believe that jesus was son of god by grace rather than by nature now that that one's kind of tricky too it almost sounds like a trick question kind of thing because we're like yes Saved by grace. By grace is good. By grace is always what we're talking about. But when it comes to Jesus, we're talking about by grace versus by nature. That's very different. Because if Jesus has to be, so to speak, saved by grace, well, what does that tell us about who he is? Or Yeah, there's, he must be sinful or something. He's not, he's not fully equal with the Father. And so this is problematic as well. And then finally most specifically, and where adoptionism really became clear, is they'd say Jesus became divine. He was adopted by God the Father specifically at his baptism. Okay, so we're talking about his baptism, and there's questions that get raised, I think rightly get raised, because it's like, well, how does all of this work? Why is Jesus being baptized if he's the Son of God, if he's, you know, sinless? Baptism is for sinners, John tells us as much, and that's why, what's John's reaction when Jesus tries to be baptized? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Ah, not so fast. I, it just always cracks me up because Matthew in particular says John tried to prevent him. And it's like, is Jesus just stronger? Like, he, you know, he had some moves. He worked out of it. He did a swim move, you know, like lineman on football. He tried to. He couldn't stop him. But there was that kind of just divine necessity laid on the, laid on the Lord that John recognized. Now, it's easy to just read those four bullet points and say, oh, clearly this is way off. We don't want anything to do with it. And you wouldn't be wrong. But let me, once again, lay out in simple terms kind of the logic of adoptionism because there was a logic to it. And it's important for us, I think, to, to recognize this. So first of all, first point for adoptionism, they say, we are adopted children of God. That's true, right? Yes, okay, good. Jesus became fully one of us. True or false? True. True. Yes. He became truly one of us. Ergo, Jesus must also have been adopted. Well, oh, wait a second. You know? It's one of those where it's like, ah, I'm not quite sure that's where we want how we want the logic to follow. But you can at least see that there's a kind of reasonableness and rationality to it. Now, incidentally, as we've seen with other heresies, sometimes reasonableness gets you into trouble. Because <laughs> if you're too reasonable, like that's, that's almost too logical. Yes, we're adopted children of God. Jesus became fully one of us. He must have been adopted too. From good reasons, they're trying to stress this. And so let's just lay out just briefly some more of this case for adoptionism. Number two, adoptionism underscores what God surrendered. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's really showing how, uh, there's too many blanks on your handout. I apologize for that. Like, wait a second. Surrendered what? What God surrendered. What, if you like, what he gave up. There you go. There's two, two blanks for you. What he gave up. How far he came. Adoptionism really wants to stress the fact that Jesus, when he came as one of us, he became fully human. He went down into the depths and the dregs of humanity. I think that's part of the reason that the the most common text, which was their touchstone, is precisely what we were mentioning before, Luke 3, and the account of Jesus' baptism there. So let's go to Luke chapter 3. Okay, so Luke 3, and I'm going to... Start to pick up with verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. All right, you just stop right there, and what's the picture of Jesus that you get? If all you had was John's preaching, what would you be expecting with with the Christ, with the Messiah? A farmer. farmer. (laughs) All right, fair. Well, a judge, somebody said, yes. A A harsh judge. Somebody who's coming to, you know, pick butts and take names, right? This is the perception that John has. So, with many other exhortations, it continues, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Then, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Okay, so if you're reading this, you're hearing this from an adoptionist kind of perspective, that point of view. What are you hearing? When, you, when the heavens are opened, and now the, the voice of the Father and the, the Spirit comes down, you're, it's like you're seeing this moment play out in real time in which Jesus goes from being regular guy to son of God. And just think about this. Before Jesus' 30th birthday, give or take, uh, what do we know about him? What was he doing? Don't really know. He's a carpenter, tecton, stonemason. He's working in the trades. I mean, think about this. And Luke gives us the only story that we even have between his birth and, you know, toddler, I'd say, if you include magi, up to when he starts his ministry, the story of him going to the temple, right? Outside of that, We've got nothing. Incidentally, that's why a lot of um, the so-called Gnostic Gospels and these apocryphal Gospels sprang up. They filled a void where there wasn't one. They're like, whoa, oh, that seems like we could tell a lot more stories about Jesus. What was he doing? And, you know, there's stories about Jesus on the playground with the other kids and suddenly he's, he's like a m- magician. He's making birds come out of clay and stuff. And, the, you know, the kids are like, you know... Um, It's a great way to make friends and uh, influence people, I guess, on the playground. But we're given none of those stories. And so, I think it's understandable to see, well, all right, here it seems like a really big deal. The Holy Spirit comes on him and the Father says, you are my beloved son. Perhaps this is the moment when he becomes the Son of God. Can you kind of see where they're coming from with it? What do you do with, Yeah, was he, uh, oh, great, that's a great um, text. So um, Sandy's saying, well, what do you do with that story then of when he's at the temple when he says, I must be about my father's business. Yeah. He doesn't say I must be about God's business. I must, he must be about my father's business. I mean, here's the deal. Like, the her- heresies are not always very good readers of scripture. So, I mean, I agree with you 100%. I, it seems to me perfectly clear you could go to that story, certainly John, as we will. Um, but if you're just reading Luke and you're just reading it in isolation or the baptism accounts more generally, you can look at that and say, well, here's the moment when he becomes kind of supercharged, if you want to put it that way, as the son of God. Okay. Uh, I mean, Hebrews says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Perhaps their, their thinking is, all right at his baptism, that's when he's kind of begotten, as it were, as the Son of God, even if before he was special, now he takes on this new cast. All right, well, once again, as I always try to do, let's make clear what's at stake with this heresy and why it matters. A few thoughts. First of all, did Jesus earn his status, and if so, what does that mean for us? Is there something about Jesus that when he goes down into the water, there's all these other sinners there, why does he get picked out? Could it have been anybody? Was it like the claw in one of those you know, games, the you know, father's coming? Mm, this guy, all right. What was so special about him? Is God's commitment to us irrevocable? In other words, is he all in? Or is it more the case that he's, all right, this guy is my beloved son because he does what I want him to do, but if not, then I cast him off. Is Jesus our savior or simply our example? This is a big one that comes out with adoptionism because they're saying he, uh, we follow in all of his footsteps and so he is our exemplar and our example, which is true in many respects, but is he merely that or is he also our savior? And then finally, underlying all of this, what does it really mean to call Jesus son of God? What does it mean to call him son of God? Is that just an honorific? Is it a title that was given to him because he had been so faithful? He did such a good job as as the Messiah that God also said, all right, and you know what? I'm going to call you son of God as well. It's kind of like a, a nice honor that he gets. Or does it speak to something essential about who he is? So some of what's at stake in adoptionism. All right, before we go on to refute it, let me pause for questions or reflections so far. Yeah, Leslie. Is there anything in that adoptionism where uh, you said what's at stake and so forth, where they go back and say, well, you know, God chose the Israelites, Mm. chose Abraham out of all the people. Right. And they were his people. Yeah. And forget about these other people over here, the Gentiles. Yeah. Is there anything in adoptionism that speaks to that? That's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head, but you can certainly get the impression like, okay, this has been God's pattern. He sort of picks out, he adopts his chosen people, starting with Abraham, as you say, or Abram, and then you know, with the Israelites after him. And so perhaps this is just God continuing that same modus operandi where he's now, Jesus is the, is the new God and he's special. He's chosen. This is my chosen one. Um, but is he more than that? Well, we're not so sure. Uh, it, that could be in there, but I, I'm not uh, sure. Yes, Sandy? I mean, isn't part of the reason chose Abraham <clears throat> was in order to prepare the way for this plan? Uh, yes. Not, I mean... Yes, absolutely. So Sandy asks, isn't part of the reason that God chose Abraham precisely preparing the way for this plan? And yeah, yeah I mean, he is that seed. Yes. So, I mean, it's the, the groundwork has been laid from from time immemorial. Yeah. Any other questions so far on adoptionism? Okay, so then let's, let's talk about why, how we can refute it. What are some of the key points that um, bring us against this heresy? Number three on your handout, Jesus did not earn his status. He did not earn his status. His, this is, it, as being co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he, from the very beginning of creation, He's equal with them. So let's revisit a text which is so key to, to so many of these conversations, John chapter 1. In many cases, John 1 is kind of your trump card with these um, discussions about the, the heresies because John speaks so um, strongly and so clearly about Jesus' divine identity throughout his gospel but in particular in these first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right. All right. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, of course, being Jesus himself. Indisputable video evidence, as they say during a football game. <laughs> he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1.17. Well, scriptures speak this way, where and it goes uh, along with other discussions we've had in terms of his divine and his human nature. So when it comes to Jesus' human nature, yes, we see him growing up. And, uh, I mean, he's growing in stature and in wisdom and favor with all the people. But he still, at the same time, in his divine nature, has this essential equality with God the Father from the very beginning. So that his status as the Son of God isn't something that he earns. It's who he is. It's what he has from eternity, okay? Now, this becomes important, not only in Jesus, but then who Jesus is to be able to save you and me. That he's not earning the status, but it is his, which he then will be able to bestow. Next, number four on your handout. Christ's lordship is all-inclusive. It's all-inclusive. When we talk about Jesus being the Son of God and being our Savior it's important to recognize it's not just over part of life, which I think you could get to if you think, well, okay, so Jesus, well, he was, he was a, a carpenter for a time, and so he was just sort of whiling away in obscurity, and he wasn't doing really religious or spiritual stuff. But then later, when it really gets down to business, when he's going to start going to professional ministry, as we say, then the father's like, oh, this is my guy. This is the son of God. I think it's an easy step then to say, well, what really matters and where his lordship really extends is over the religious and the spiritual things that you and I do. Those are the things that are beloved and blessed by the Father. Whereas the other stuff, you know, he could take it or leave it. This is antithetical to the biblical vision of reality and in particular of the, the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus and how our lives then are caught up into him. There's plenty of places we could go to to demonstrate this. but Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 10, picking up in verse 23, where Paul is having this ongoing discussion, conversation with the Corinthians about their food sacrifice to idols and what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, as a matter what we're eating or how we're conducting our day-to-day lives. Paul is going to put the smack down here. He said, all things are lawful. He's quoting from what they were saying to him. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting from Psalm 24, which is already a, a mark against this notion that we can divvy up life into this part of life is, belongs to the Lord and this part doesn't. No, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat is set before you, Without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed," then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Here's the key. So then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Paul's saying is all of life is under the realm and reign, under the lordship of Jesus. All of that belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Therefore, as you live your life, don't act as though there's kind of the the sacred and the secular, divvying it up between which part is God's and and which part is man's. Recent gospel reading on Sunday, uh, we had that uh, great um, one-liner from Jesus when he gets... The, the Pharisees are coming after him with the coin. you know. They show him the coin for the tax. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. One well, unfortunate misreading of that text is, well, Caesar has this half of life and God has this half of life. You know, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, all of this worldly type stuff, and give to God the things that are God's, the spiritual things. So then God gets at least a, one day a week or at least a couple of hours on one day a week. And Caesar has all the rest. Could that really be what Jesus is talking about there? (laughs) By no means. As I said in that that sermon then, Jesus, in answering that way, is basically saying, you know, your question is the wrong question, right? Caesar wants, he wants every last bit of you, but render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Conscripted. He wants his taxes, fine. But to God, the things that are God's. His image is on you. His inscription is written upon you. All of life, ultimately, belongs to Him. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or anything, do it all to the glory of God. I love this quote from uh, author Tish Harrison Warren. This is in her book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says, Christ's ordinary years are part of our redemption story. Because of the incarnation in those long, unrecorded years of Jesus' life, our small, normal lives matter. If Christ was a carpenter, all of us who are in Christ find that our work is sanctified and made holy. If Christ spent time in obscurity, then there is infinite worth found in obscurity. If Christ spent most of his life in quotidian ways, there's a word for you, then all of life is brought under his lordship. There's no task too small or too routine, to reflect God's glory and worth. I love that. And you see the point that she's making. We call Jesus Redeemer. And Jesus didn't, when he came in, when he entered into our world, he didn't come fully formed as a 30-year-old man and get started right away. He went through each and every step of it. He was conceived and born. He, He went through childhood. God bless him, he went through puberty, right? All of these different steps. And in doing so, he's redeeming all of it. Every aspect of of the life cycle, every realm of human endeavor, he's catching it all up under the reign and realm of God Almighty. This is who he is, this is what he's about. And so then for us to live faithfully in him and under his blessing means that in whatever vocation I am, whatever walk of life I'm in. Now granted, Jesus didn't live in his earthly years past 33 or so. But that's not to say, of course, that those years are suddenly somehow, you know, overlooked by God. Like, then I think pretty much everybody in this room, with the exception of a couple of you, are out of luck. No, that's not the point. The point is that all of it, all of life, beginning to end, is caught up under the blessing and reign of Jesus. This is a marvelous message. I think it's one that's too often been lost in our modern world where we're so keen to separate things, right? You put you, your spiritual, your faith, that's private. You keep that to yourself. Whereas what really matters are the things that are out in, in public. And that's where you kind of check your faith at the door and leave it, leave it behind. It all belongs to the Lord. Questions or reflections on that? I'm, I'm keen to hear from you guys. Like, What struggles or opportunities have you found in your life to be able to be a Christian in public? you know, in, in your job and out there in the world, did you feel this tension sometimes or have you felt to, okay, I'm going to keep that part of my identity separate because that's, you know, a different part of life. Melody, are you raising your hand or just no, um, you're thinking, I, pondering? I was shaking my head, yes. <laughs> yes, okay, good, good. Any of you, Miriam? Well, I actually have a friend about, hmm. We were talking about, she asked me a question about you have it. Yeah. And i was saying, there's only one way. Yeah. And when I quoted uh, John... John 14. 14. Yep. Yeah. I'm the way and the truth I'm and the light. I'm the way and the truth and the light. No mm-hmm. man comes to the Father, but by me. Right. She said, you believe that? Hmm. And then she said, do your daughters believe that? And I said, yes. Yeah. That is the truth. It's in Scripture. Right. Yeah. And those are the sorts of things that, if, this, is the, this is the danger, right? If you're going to be out there with your faith, then it leaves you kind of vulnerable, open to people saying, oh, well, wait a second, what, a, what about that? And some of those traps like we talked about a couple of weeks ago where you're going to get tough questions, as perhaps we should, you know, that's fair. Share a quick anecdote from this past week, Lewis. Uh, as you know, our kids are going to, to Bear Lake School this year, and um, Lewis had a, an overnight thing that they did down at um, a camp at, near Luddington. His whole class, his whole seventh grade class, went down there. Well, at one point, um, they're having the meals, and the teacher, bless her, Mrs. Hartun, um, who's related to, or her husband's related to Eugene Bischoff. Here, many of you guys remember Eugene Bischoff, and uh, she said, Would anybody like to pray before the meal? You know, it's public school. It's like, not, a, not every single one of them, and not every class is always saying, you know, let's pray to Satan or something like that, right? Sometimes you can get that impression. And I was so proud. Lewis said, I, I raised my hand, and Dad, I gave a really good prayer. <laughs> All right. Way to represent. But. How neat was that I thought you know an opportunity for him to to witness in that small way and you know bless the teacher too for making, making room for that you know I don't know maybe she'll get in trouble about it later I'm not sure but in any case, I think that's really quite cool. so yes Andy. I had an incident uh, a week or so ago when um, the topic of church came up and everybody was right away talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, and you're like, Amen. Yeah, <laughs> and then uh, one of the ladies leaned over to me and said, My granddaughter is still singing that song from Vacation Bible School. Oh, yeah. Covered in Jesus' grace. Yeah. Covered in Jesus' grace, and I said, You know, that's true no matter who's a hypocrite. Yes. You know, but it's, I know it's. It can can be tough. It can be hard out there. But you're right. I mean, God goes before us and he's faithful and provides those glimmers and opportunities of hope too. I think it's just so important for us to recognize and embrace. It's too easy to divvy life up into sacred, secular. Here's the part that belongs to the Lord. Here's the part that that doesn't. Um, As though he's just adopted us for the spiritual things. No, all of it belongs to him. Next point, number five on your handout. He, Jesus, is son by nature. We are sons and daughters by grace. So because he is equal to God the Father, he exists from eternity, he is by nature divine, son of God. Whereas you and I become sons and daughters of God by his adopting grace. We are not, this sometimes gets, and I put it in the, the quiz here for this point, because... There, there can be some muddling. Well, sometimes we'll talk about, well, everybody's a, a child of God. And this is where I can sound like a little bit of a fuddy-duddy. So, well, actually, uh, when it comes up to it. But it, it's getting a, a significant point because we become children of God by grace. Apart from God's grace and apart from his blessing, Scripture has some very different words to say that we are what we are. Uh, You think of Jesus' own words. He says in John chapter 8 that apart from him, apart from his forgiveness, he says, you are of your father who? The devil. The devil. devil. Ephesians 2 speaks of how we are all by nature children, not of God, but of wrath. So apart from God's intervention, his gracious work on us, we're, we're not... Children of God. Now, if you want to say in the, in the broadest sense, like we're his creatures, we have his image, okay. But just in the interest of wanting to be clear in our language, what makes you and me children of God is not merely being born. We're image bearers of God by virtue of being born. But what makes you his child, makes you part of his family, is that you are adopted in. Turn to Romans 8. All right, Romans 8, uh, picking up with verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Okay, so here Paul makes clear that our connection, our adoption comes in and through Christ because he is the Son of God. Now you and I, in him, become sons and daughters of God, become children of God in our epistle lesson today in, in worship as well. 1 John chapter 3. How great it is to be called children of God. And so we are. So you and I are. Because of what he has done for us. And now we have received that same spirit, the spirit of Jesus, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now this is, you have Jesus speaking this very word in Mark 14. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's often pointed out that this word, Abba, um, which comes from the Aramaic, it means it has this close relationality. It's not, it's not just like father, but it's closer to daddy. Right? It ha- it's that, that sense of um, endearing relationship. That's the way that at his deepest, darkest moment, Jesus is speaking to his father. Saying, daddy, Abba. And uh, I've shared the, the story before, but it bears repeating. A couple of years back, actually, well, let, let me tell it. But uh, a couple years back, I'm playing basketball over at the community center. And there's uh, this young man who's Jewish, who would come regularly and play with us. And he would bring his daughters, who were quite young at the time, probably like three and five. And we're playing basketball, and they're off to the side. And you can tell that they're getting kind of impatient. And they're just waiting for us to get done with the game or whatever. And they're crying out to him and they're yelling out, Abba, 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 let's go. And it was like, oh yeah, this is what it's like, Abba's the kind of word that you use when you just want your dad to hurry up, right? When, you just are, when you're just crying out, when you feel that, that <coughs> profound need, that's the way we speak. And that's, that's the privilege that you and I have in Jesus, that now we are, as sons and daughters of God, able to call him our Ab, to come before him. That has real ramifications for something as simple as how do we pray? Like when you come before the Lord in prayer, you don't have to use King James English. You may, but I mean, I would discourage it unless you talk that way normally, right? Thou is correct. <laughs> yes, thou is correct. Um, But to to come before our Father, our Abba, and to speak to him, we say in the small catechism, with all boldness and confidence as dear children talk to their dear Father. That's that's the privilege that we have as those who have been adopted into the family of God by grace, because of what Jesus has done for us. I want to bring it home with a a few closing thoughts here. Then The secular-sacred divide is hogwash, and very much kind of a modern invention. I think we're recapturing and recovering a sense that all of life is sacred under the reign and rule of our Lord Jesus. We see that being God's child is our essential identity. In other words, that's the, the part of who you are that then influences and comes before everything else about you. This notion of identity gets talked about a lot in our world today in po- ways positive and negative. But where I think it's helpful is to recognize that our essential identity, our core sense of being, is as God's child. And we can always go back to that. Like the, the song that Ann taught me, the little, the little ditty that Ann taught me to um, teach the preschoolers. Back when, uh, at my previous church, where we had the preschool. And each day at the beginning when we have chapel, I'd have them tap themselves on the head, God's little child, that's who I am. He loves me so much, I belong to him. Um, We grow up, but we never stop being children of God. Scripture never talks about adults of God. You notice that? (laughs) And now, how wonderful to be adults of God. You are ever and always God's child, no matter how old you might be. And so recognizing that that's our essential identity and that all of life is under his blessing, then we crown him the Lord of heaven. We crown him uh, of Lord of all things, King of all things. And I was thinking for All Saints Day, we didn't sing it in worship, but would you join me in just, if you can read it, it's, I know it's small, but if you can, if you can see it, you want to join me in <coughs> singing just the one stanza from Crown Him with Many Crowns. Crowned in the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. not to be an adoptionist one aware heresy creep these things come back again and again you hear about mission creep now there's heresy creep too two don't divvy up your life and think this is the spiritual life this is the religious life whatever like when we walk out from this place when I was uh, at my church growing up we had a parking lot outside the parking lot there's a sign maybe some of you have seen this as well you are now entering the mission field yeah as you leave this place, you go with God's blessing. His spirit goes before you. Yeah. I mean, in uh, one of the Johns, he talks about how unstable you are. You have a divided mind. Yeah. And a divided, and it's not stable. It's not stable. to Have a divided mind, divided allegiances. No, we're our allegiances with King Jesus. Thirdly, recognize what's important about Jesus' baptism. What's important is that now he, he having been baptized, we are baptized into him and it's all caught up in him and finally something i do recommend celebrate your own baptismal birthday now a quick show of hands how many of you know when your baptismal birthday was all right so that's our first problem so your first your homework <laughs> this week is see if you can find out what was your baptismal birthday if you know where it was churches generally keep these records you could probably call the church up this week and say, hey, when did I get baptized? I'm like, who's this? <laughs> uh, we certainly do here. And, so, um, and if you're baptized here, we could look it up. But if not, I encourage you to, to try and find that. It's, we celebrate our natural birthdays as well we should. But to celebrate your baptismal birthday is the day in which you're, bapt- in which you're adopted into God's family by grace. All right, then. Let's go to our quiz answers. Number one. Jesus wasn't always Christ, but became so at his baptism. True or false? False. False. Number two, Jesus is Lord only of the sacred part of life. False. False. Number three, we're naturally children of God apart from grace. False. False. And number four, Jesus earned his status as the son of God through his works. False. False. And finally, through holy baptism, God adopts people into his family. True. True, True. That is what he does. Very good. Okay, thank you guys for our continued study. We've got uh, a couple more uh, heresies to look at before we get into Advent, and we'll shake it up a little bit at that point. Yeah, Leslie? Just a small point you were talking about. You know, he always says in the Bible, we are children of God. Yeah. It's kind of like as our kids grow up and become adults right? might earn their 40s and 50s. Yeah. And it's like we're always talking about the kids. The kids, yes. They're still your kids, right? They're still our like kids. Yep, especially when they're borrowing your Netflix password and uh, <laughs> staying on your cell phone, so.